Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We uh, had a good week this week, nothing particularly exciting. Um, Got a little bit of uh, further information um, from the county, actually, about uh, Will uh, this week. It it didn't conflict uh, with the the state's thing. Uh, it, it said that the death was as a result of the fall that he had had a year before. But there was a little bit of clarity in there. There was this weird thing in the state um, report that said something about um, a black ankle monitoring bracelet was found among his personal effects. And, and I called, and they said, well, I, we don't know. Maybe it's something they put on at the county facility before they ship the body over to uh, Wake Forest. Well, not Wake Forest, sorry, um, Baptist Hospital in Winston-Salem. And then um, the, the the county thing described it appropriately. I, I said, didn't know what it was, just had no earthly idea what they could be talking about. What it was was a black ankle support thing like you'd buy at Walgreens if you had bad ankles, and he did, so he wore those things. So anyway, it was that, nice to have that mystery cleared up at least. Um, but anyway, so we've, we've had a good week. We've been home all week, which is unusual lately, and so um, it, it's been a good week and, and nothing exciting going on <laughs> at all. Didn't get as much done as I had hoped that I would would but um anyway that's the way it goes sometimes so anyway we're um just kind of rocking along trying to trying to figure out what god wants for us and 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 what he wants to do so at any rate uh, keep us in your prayers um i appreciate that very much if there's any way that i can pray for you please reach out to me on facebook at faith and understanding so it'd be um, www.facebook.com slash faith and understanding and you'll find it there and you can send me a prayer request for you there in that place um anyway so this week what we're it's it's odd because one of the things i'm working on is the daily podcast and the daily podcast this year suzanne said why don't you do um why don't you do uh, the the gospel of matthew and so i've been working through that well as it turns out it's also the the lectionary right now has us in the Gospel of Matthew, and so actually the the Old Testament lesson and the New Testament lesson, or the Gospel, I mean, are both uh, I've dealt with already once this week. So um, good news is that that doesn't come until later. So it, once you get to that, then you can skip it if you if you do the daily thing. Um, anyway, so what we've got today is Isaiah 9, 1 to 4, and it's, it's the first part of probably the most beautiful messianic prophecy there is in the Old Testament, um, because it, it's the most hopeful thing. So it would have been written to, um, the, the prophecy here would have been written to the, the uh, people in exile in Babylon. And so the, these were people desperately in need of hope. And so it's not Isaiah, by the way, that's to understand prophetic um, writings is to, to understand that Isaiah didn't just feel sorry for these people, and so he wrote them some prophecy. No, uh, that, that would encourage them. No, that's not what happened. God moved and gave him a word to, to speak to the people in exile. Now, they're going to be there a very, very long time. And, so, and, and the fulfillment of this prophecy awaits a, a much later date 
it, it, it awaits another 600 years until the coming of Christ. So let's get started on it. He says, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. So the, the good news is, is that basically you will, that in the latter days, you'll have no recollection of the former days because it, there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In other words, the situation is going to be reversed. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So what is Zebulun and Naphtali, right? So Zebulun and Naphtali are two of the children of Jacob. So they are two of the tribes of Israel. And and they, they, their inheritance in the land included Galilee. It was that portion in the north, uh, away from Jerusalem, and, and where Jesus spent much of his time uh, was in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and that would be um, those regions up around Galilee. Um, so how do we then go from there to what is this, this whole problem of being brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Galilee of the nations is another way to say that. Well, that's part of the issue is this idea of being Galilee of the nations. It was not intended to be Galilee of the nations. It was intended to be Galilee of Israel. But it's Galilee of the nations, so why is that? Okay, so it begins with the invasion of the Assyrian Empire where they come down and they take the northern kingdom which would have been after the time of Solomon when the, when the nations divided into two, with two tribes in the south and ten tribes in the north. And so that the Assyrian Empire comes in. Well, where does it come first? What part of the land is the first part of the land to be conquered? That would be Zebulun and Naphtali, the Galilee of the nations area that's under consideration here. So they are, they are sort of the back door to the nation. That you've got to get to get to Jerusalem, for instance, to get to Samaria, where the other capital was. You come through there, and, and that becomes the problem. So a Syrian empire comes through and conquers that area, takes some of the people away, some of the Jews away from that their ancestral lands, and then resettles other exiled people in there. So we're getting a mixed population. Well, what happens then? A hundred years-ish later? comes the Babylonian Empire to conquer Jerusalem. But the Egyptians have come in, and all these other people have come in during this same period of time, and were unable to complete the conquest. The Babylonians are able to complete the conquest, but where does it begin? Well, it begins up in Galilee. It begins in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. So now you're, you're going to get some of the, the best and the brightest taken from there and moved away, and they go to Babylon, and many of those people stayed. Most of the people who got exiled to Babylon stayed in Babylon. So you get these people. Now it's a, it's a further mixture, and then a while later, Babylonian uh, Empire is conquered by the Persians, and so now we've got further uh, division and further change. Most of the people who come back in the time of Cyrus don't come back to Galilee. They go to Jerusalem and they rebuild Jerusalem. They rebuild the city walls and the city itself with Nehemiah and then set about the work of rebuilding the temple with Ezra. And so that work is being done there. So Galilee is not being repopulated with returning Jews. 
So then, you know, it goes on and on. The Greeks conquer it a few hundred years later, and it becomes sort of the center of the, the settlement of the region by, by Greece. And so Greco-Hellenized culture becomes the dominant culture in that area. And then the Romans come, and everybody comes through Galilee. And so that, that area, because it's near the water, it's not too far from the Mediterranean, and it's, it's there on the Sea of Galilee. So it, it becomes kind of a popular place for people to come and live. They don't want to live in Jerusalem. If you're not a Jew, you don't want to live in Jerusalem, typically, because, well, that's their holy city. So you settle in this region up here, and, and that's exactly what's happened, because it, it becomes the gateway to everything else. And so that, that's the reason that it's called Galilee of the Nations, because so many of the people that lived there were not Jewish. And the problem from the people in Jerusalem's uh, perspective, they looked at the people in Galilee as hopelessly compromised. Yeah, they come down for the festivals and all that, but they live very differently from those who, whose uh, lives are governed, let's say, by the, by the temple. So they have a different thing up there. They're further from the center of Judaism. And the further you are from the center of Judaism, unless you're in Babylon, um, then, then you're considered to be looked down upon. The ones in Babylon, they say, preserved some purity of religion. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm only going to say this, but I can't prove this, and, but I'm certainly, it's certainly worth speculating about, is the, the, the Babylonian Talmud, which I've told you before, there are two Talmuds, which are the, the oral law and the interpretations of the oral law. Um, there are two. One is in Babylonian Talmud. The other one is Jerusalem Talmud. The one that is most authoritative in Judaism today tends to be the Babylonian Talmud. Now, here's my speculation. My speculation is, is that those people who remained settled in Babylon did so for one particular reason. And this part is true. I mean, I'm not speculating here at all. They settled for one particular reason and didn't return. That is, they were very prosperous in Babylon. They found it to be a, a place that was conducive to business. And so they, they found it to be an hospitable place to stay and to make money. And so that they did, however, keep their religion, and they took it seriously. That's the reason the Babylonian Talmud is considered to be more the authoritative one. So that they were shipping a lot of money back to Jerusalem. So, yep got respect for you, that Galileans, like I said, were kind of considered outcasts. And so what's funny is, so you got the Jerusalem people looking down on the Galilee people, and then you got that whole separatist movement out in the wilderness who's out there where John the Baptist was baptizing. And they looked down on the Jerusalem people. You can only imagine what they would have thought about the Galilean people, that they were compromised beyond any hope of redemption. But here, God says, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, which is the Galilee, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness, those who have been overrun time and time again, have seen a great light. <clears throat> those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has come. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The day that Midian is destroyed is what that means, is that, that, that we have that same kind of relief is what will come. And it will begin right there in Galilee of the nations where all the bad stuff 
has happened time and time and time again. So what's saying is, is that, that even though it is looked down upon and, and it looks like it's those in darkness because they're surrounded by this uh, Hellenized Greco-Roman culture and by all these nations, these pagans that surround that area at that time because the, the Romans and the Greeks set up cities in those areas and moved their troops in there. And, and it, was, it was the least favorite place to be for Jews because you had to quarter soldiers from whatever occupying force there was, and you had to deal with that in a, in a uh, very much more day-to-day kind of interaction with the rest of the world, whereas in Jerusalem— you could kind of sequester yourself and get away and just be among Jews. And so the promise here is to the exile community. But what it's saying is, is that your salvation and the redemption begins right up there in Galilee, right where all the bad stuff begins. All the good stuff in the future will come from Galilee. It'll emanate from that place. The, the people who have sat in darkness have now seen a great light. And we know that that light is Jesus. And so we go now to the Matthew passage, and he says, Now when he, Jesus, had heard, this is right after the temptations, that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So the, the issue here is, is that so John's been arrested for his preaching. He's, he's been called into Jerusalem, out of the wilderness. He's been called there to give an account of himself. What is he preaching? He's preaching against Judaism, but he's also preaching against Herod, Herod Antipas, because he had married his brother's wife. He thought that would be a better alliance for him, and it turned out to be exactly the opposite. He fell in love with her immediately, but, but he, it turned out to be exactly the opposite of what he wanted from this thing. And so John began to speak against him because Herod was held up for them as, oh, you have a ruler who is one of you. And John's response is, well, if he's one of us, then he ought to keep the law, shouldn't he? It ought to be recognizable that he's one of us. But he married his brother's wife, not his, not his widow, but his wife. And he divorced his wife in order to marry her. And, and that's where the wrong comes in. And so John's called into Jerusalem to have to deal with that. And so Jesus, it's not time for him to pick a fight. So he pulls back and goes into Galilee, much as his father had done when they returned from Egypt. And Joseph got a word that Archelaus was ruling instead of his father, Herod the Great, and, and therefore he shouldn't go down there because he was a lot like Herod the Great. And so he goes up to Galilee. And so Jesus does the same here because his time had not yet come. It's not that Jesus has fear, but there's work to be done, and that work must be done. Ultimately, he knows how this is going to go. But here at this juncture, the time isn't right yet. Much has to happen before he can go to Jerusalem and face the ultimate um, fate of the cross. And leaving Nazareth, which is where he was from, so Jesus goes back to Galilee, goes to Nazareth, and then lived at Capernaum by the sea in the territory, Matthew says, of Zebulun and Naphtali. Uh, Matthew is the only one who refers to it in that way. And the reason, again, is, is that Matthew is speaking to primarily Jewish Christians, we believe, at Antioch. And so he's preaching to them, and he, he is connecting these dots for them. So when he says that he lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, then he expects that his audience, the Jews, that will be the important part of what he has to say to them. Because that is the Jewish heritage of that region. 
He said, so, so he went there so that that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah that we just read might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the ways of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So he connects him with Nazareth. He's already given him props prophetically to Nazareth, and now he gets him into that land of Zebulun and Naphtali. He doesn't refer to it as Galilee straight in a straightforward way. No, he refers to it by the ancestral occupation of that land because of whom he's writing to. And then he says, For that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, We've heard that message before, right? That was John's message. That was the message John was preaching. It was a, it was a very minimalist message, but, but there's a lot of promise and a lot of hope in it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand would say to anybody in that region, any Jew that heard that would, would, would say, wow, the Messiah is coming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand means the, the coming of Messiah is imminent. And Jesus is really announcing, no, it's here. Messiah is here, and it's me. But what's he calling them to? He's calling them to repent. And that's exactly the call that, that he always puts on us, the church, today. We haven't replaced Israel. As Paul says, we've been grafted into Israel. So it's not a replacement that we've done, but, but we as the church are called to repent. We're always called to repent. One of the great things to know about this call to repentance is a very simple thing, and that is that is always, without fail, the first thing that happens when revival comes. And it shouldn't be a surprise, because it's exactly what was promised way back when in Second Chronicles 7. Um, we need to, to take seriously the call to repent, and we need not to run from it. But that's the thing is, is that, that we will repent of things that 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 are easy to repent of and we won't repent of the things that are difficult to repent of because we we will not look at our attitudes in the same way and when in second chronicles seven fourteen it says if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways that's repentance then i will hear from heaven and i will forgive their sin and i will heal their land and that's exactly what we're called to do as the church. That's exactly what we're always called to do in the church. We can get proud and fat and happy. And then when difficult times come, we can be confused by that. And it's because we have, we have no longer had as our first priority, we've no longer had him as that first priority. And that, if you read Deuteronomy 6, what you'll read is, is that that the land where God put his people was to be a land characterized by the filling of that land with the word of God. It was on every doorpost. It was on every set of lips. It was intended to be that way, and it's intended to be that way in the church. We're, we're supposed to forsake everything and turn and follow him. Jesus never said it was easy to follow him. And he, because he knew what it meant to forsake everything else. But he does promise that if you'll follow him, that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. Now, what do you want? Because what he's doing is offering you freedom from slavery. And we don't recognize even that we're in slavery. 
And we tend to take a slave mentality with us when we come out of that slavery and bondage. We're in bondage to sin. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And so he calls us to follow himself. And yet the thing that we have to repent of, I believe, as a church and as human beings is is that we seek too much after the world and too little after the kingdom of heaven. That, that the kingdom of heaven is something that, that we have to work into our schedule instead of working everything else around it. So he begins to preach this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preparing a people to receive a holy king, a holy God. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, who's called Peter, and Andrew his brother, <coughs> casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them, Jesus did. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So they're willing to do what the rich young ruler was not, which is to leave everything behind and follow Jesus. They, they were willing because they believed him to be the Messiah. They believed that what he was offering them was far greater and far more important than anything that they were likely to find on the Sea of Galilee. That They didn't consider prosperity to be the thing. They didn't consider whatever else to be the thing. They left everything behind to follow Jesus. It's just exactly like Jesus tells people. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So they went from a settled life and a career on the Sea of Galilee as fishermen. They left that to follow this itinerant preacher who has just recently been baptized and come onto the scene. So they're they're willing, for whatever reason, to do that. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus goes and proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. And what is the gospel of the kingdom? The gospel of the kingdom is the Old Testament hopeful prophetic message concerning the coming of Messiah and the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. That, that's the proclamation. And that's exactly what Jesus is proclaiming here, that that coming of that kingdom is imminent and, and the effort is to prepare a people. And so what happens if they repent? What happens if they heed Jesus' message and repent? And I mean everybody, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, all of them. What happens is they welcome him. They see the kingdom. They see the truth of who Jesus is. And instead, they harden their hearts just as Pharaoh had done. They harden their hearts against the truth, against Jesus, against the Messiah. And so that's why, ultimately, they're shouting, crucify him. So that's the message Jesus is preaching. But what's he doing? He's healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That, too, is in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, but it also signals the kingdom is among you. The kingdom has come. It's not that it's imminent, it's here. And the proof is this healing of everything, the making whole of everything. I can only say that the greatest experience 
in my Christian life, which would mean my life. The, the greatest experience that I've ever had with the six and a half years that I was able to serve, uh, to be at Pauly's Island and to serve there. And the reason is we didn't just proclaim the gospel in words. We believed that God would heal, that God would do miraculous things. And so we asked him to, and we trusted him to do those things. And you know what? He did. We saw healings. We saw incredible things happen. We, we saw it on a regular basis. We were seeing incredible things happen. We, we saw God's kingdom expand because of the clear proclamation of the gospel and the clear demonstration that the kingdom was there among us. And we saw that in people being healed of all kinds of things. And, and so it became a place of hope. People from all over the country would come there. They would take their vacations and they would come there to just experience what we got to do every day. They came there because they wanted to see God work. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. But those earthly kingdoms never last. And so, alas, ultimately that broke apart. And there was division. And that was a heartbreaking thing to happen. I'm glad by that point that I had moved and come to uh, Asheville to start a church because it would have been so painful to watch something that was so great, so wonderful, and such a blessing fall apart that way. But I believe that the, the proclamation of the gospel is intended to cause people to be hopeful and expectant that God will move among them as, as he establishes his presence among them. And then the difficult thing, though, is, is, is that we, we can be captives to pride. We can be captives of, of our own imaginations, and we can be captured by hero worship. And that's exactly what Paul says was going on in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verses 10 to 18, which are our epistle today. He said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you should be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So there's a problem, clearly a problem here, and Paul hasn't said what it is yet, but you can bet that the community knew exactly what he was talking about. And what Paul's holding up is this wonderful ideal, which is from Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is where brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which settles on the mountain, falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And so Paul's appealing to them for this unity, and it's the most that unity, in my experience, is one of the most elusive things in the Christian life. Because we can be divided about all kinds of things. I mean, that's what I watched happen within the AMI. We became divided about um, what we wore on Sunday morning, which prayer book we used, this, that, and the other thing. I mean, I had I had a, a brawl almost in my church here because there were people who thought that I was doing something blasphemous because we used a pottery chalice. It, that somehow or another that was, that was a, a blasphemous and failing to give God your best kind of thing. And, and I just I, I missed that argument completely, but I had somebody get upset one time, and I didn't know what she was upset about until I asked her, and, and what it was was the candles weren't pure white. 
They were natural beeswax candles. They weren't dyed in any way, but they should have been white. I saw people get upset about whether we use blue or purple during Advent as far as the hangings and stuff in the church are concerned. I, I, I saw divisions among, you know, theological divisions sometimes, which was which would come down to, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, that, that there were all these divisions that were constantly cropping up. I, I, for a while, was head of clergy credentialing to bring people into the church. I was babysitting the job until the guy they had hired took it over. And, and there were 120-something names that I had, and, and I finally had to tell them, stop saying there's 120-something people in the pipeline. There might be 15. Most of these other people would come in here and cause huge problems because they're leaving their denominations over things they want to talk about that are heresies there that... Th- that I've never even heard of. And they're going to bring that into this. And and that's the problem is there's always the potential for division. And it's very, very difficult to maintain unity for any long period of time in the body of Christ. And so Paul is pleading with the Corinthians not to let this happen. He's upholding the value of being united in the same mind and the same judgment. He goes on to say, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people, and we don't know who that is, that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anybody else. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom. He's going to have to deal with that coming up, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says, I didn't come preaching philosophy and, and, and using highfalutin language. No, I, I preached in simplicity when I preached to you because the cross of Christ is where the power is, not in my words, not in my eloquent wisdom. No, 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 no. It's that thing. The word of cro- the cross, he says, is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the very power of God. And, and we can become divided over these things because we're, we're seeking after somebody else's bread. And that becomes the real problem in the church. We, we can do hero worship like they were doing here. They, they say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Paul says, no, don't follow me, follow Jesus. It's the same thing John said when he's pointing to Jesus and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John is pointing his own disciples away from himself to Jesus. That's our mission. That's who we are or who we should be. I've seen people who will separate themselves from other people because of their opinion about some popular preacher that they follow. Let me tell you this. We all have feet of clay. We're all fallible. We get some things wrong. All of us do whether we get it wrong by omission or commission. We can either fail to preach a part of the gospel, a part of the truth, or we can preach some of it wrongly. You know, one of my idols um, preached a sermon one time. It was somebody that I was close to preached a sermon after um, a time, and, and they preached about Jonah and said they didn't believe Jonah was a real story. Well, the next week I started getting phone calls from all kinds of people in that church saying, you know, I disagree. I think he's wrong about that. What do you think, John? And I said, I think he's dead wrong about that. I think that's actually something that needs to be confronted. And they did. 
they did. And he, in humility, was able to receive that. It's important that we not follow after our favorite, you know, celebrity preacher. Because they have feet of clay. They're not your salvation. And, and if, if you don't like the guy that I like, if, if he's not your favorite guy too, that, that's okay. That's okay. Because I, I believe that we each have people that, that are given to us to raise up, to mentor, to love, to trust, and to pour into the gospel. And, and it's important that we not allow those things to divide us. I don't care what, it doesn't matter to me. Unless somebody's teaching heresy, then, then I'm not going to bash that guy. But if you come to me and tell me this person said this, that, and the other thing, and it's just heresy, then I'm going to tell you it's heresy. So we've got to be careful about this. We've, we've got to, to not have our friendships and our unity contingent on what we make of any given pastor, preacher, teacher, whatever. No, it, it has to be based in Christ and in Christ alone. We each have a piece, right? So I heard it said a long time ago that every pastor, preacher, whatever, has sort of one message to preach, right? And so in in various ways, they will preach that message. And there's a huge truth in that. I want to do my best to preach the full counsel of God, and I want to constantly be able to hear him say something that opens my eyes to something new and wonderful in the gospel that I've missed because I tend to read things a certain way. You know, I'm, so, so sometimes I can miss things. I can just overlook it because it's not fitting the grid that I'm unconsciously placing on this thing. And so I can learn from anybody and everybody. I, what I want to know is I want to know Christ. And I want to know him crucified. And I don't want to be divided by opinions about other things. But, but we, we're experts at creating idols. That's the reason we get these celebrity pastors. That's the reason we get all these other things. But, my friends, I'm just saying to you, no, stay fixed on Christ. And in him, we can find our unity. We can find our unity in the cross. And that unity is where we come and we lay our sins and we receive grace. We receive mercy. We receive salvation. And we receive light and life. That's where I want to be. I'm not going to spend any time arguing with you over all this other stuff or all these other people. Not interesting to me. Not interesting to me in the least. I want to be attached to Jesus. I want to be with him. And wherever he goes, wherever he leads, is where I want to be. I know what it's like not to live in in following him. I don't want to be there again. That's a terrible place to be, a terrible place of the land of darkness. But I've seen that great light. And so I no longer walk in that darkness. And I'm not going to allow other things to keep me from him. And I'm not going to allow other things to break unity in the body of Christ. We have to be careful about this. We have to be like James and John, Peter and Andrew, and we have to have forsaken everything else in order to follow him. He has to be the most important thing. And if we keep the main thing the main thing, that will guard the unity of the church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.